Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello and welcome to World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Gideon Rachman. Today we're looking at the mounting and bloody chaos in Iraq and Syria. On the line are two of our Middle East specialists, David Gardner and Erica Solomon. David, it had seemed for a while as if a ceasefire of sorts had been taking hold in Syria, but that's obviously broken down now in horrible fighting around Aleppo. No, absolutely, and quite right, a ceasefire of sorts and a partial ceasefire. And I think one of the primary reasons that it's broken down is because it was never intended to include ISIS or Jabhat al-Nusra, the local chapter of al-Qaeda in Syria. But the regime offensives backed by Russia in the air and Iran and its allies on the ground against other Sunni rebel movements continued. And that's what Aleppo is about, or what remains of Aleppo. And that ceasefire is shot. And while that remains the case, it's quite hard to see the talks in Geneva getting any traction at all. Now, the war's been going on for something like five years now, and I think many people have kind of got lost in sort of mixture of despair and complexity of the situation. But is there any sign that actually any side is going to emerge potentially as a victor? Or is the balance of forces on the battlefield changing? I mean, if you divide that, I mean, simplifying wildly and artificially into, say, three blocks, regime, ISIS, and everything that's in between them. ISIS obviously doesn't have the sort of millenarian agenda which ends in negotiations of any sort. The regime, once the Russians came in to salvage the Assad's last autumn, have been able to take some territory and to harden their defences and so on. They clearly don't have any plans to stop and the sort of negotiations that they foresee would be on their terms and with the Assad's still in place. But there are certain things which are quite hard to get past, ultimately. When you're looking at a situation where, A, Assad is a ward of two states, Iran and Russia, and this costs them billions of dollars that they don't actually have. Secondly, it is difficult to think of displacing Assad, nonetheless, because of the way the regime was built with the family and the clan in charge of the security services and the army. But the longer this goes on, they are earning the long-term enmity, perhaps for generations, of the Arab-Sunni world, and that is an enormous cost too. And the third cost, I think, is the fact that the regime lacks manpower, which is why they rely on Iranian Revolutionary Guards, Hezbollah, Iraqi Shia militia, Russian jets, and so on and so forth. And Assad appears to be taking the attitude that now he's on something of a role. He's going to fight to the last Iranian, Russian, Lebanese, Afghan, Iraqi, and so on. I just wonder at what point pragmatism may kick in. I don't think we're there now. And 
both Moscow and Tehran will say, well, listen, it cannot continue like this. The costs are really just far too high. I mean, Erica, you've also watched the conflict for many years now. Do you see any hope for these peace negotiations? We saw John Kerry, the US Secretary of State, attempt just as a preliminary to try to get the ceasefire back in place. But obviously, the longer term goal is to to try to get a settlement. Do you think he's got any hope? You know, Gideon, it's interesting. I was just in Washington, D.C. to meet with U.S. officials to sort of bring together the view that I get from speaking to local actors in Syria and Iraq with the American view. And the clear impression I walked away with was that, at least from the American point of view, there is a sense that both they and Russia really want a deal, but that they can't because of Assad. Still, we're still going back to the same issue, which is essentially that the Americans feel that if they cannot transition Assad out, they cannot deliver the opposition. And the Russians feel that if they cannot keep Assad in for a period of time, they cannot maintain a stable regime and they fear collapse of the state. And both are essentially right. They're kind of at an impasse. And until they can sort of find some ways around this block, and that seems very, very difficult to do, it seems hard to imagine how they're going to reach a deal. Yeah, I must say that talking to Americans, I got a similar picture of where they were myself. But the other complication is, of course, that it's hard enough, as you suggest, for the Americans and the Russians to come to a deal. But they've also got to somehow factor in the interests of all the other external actors, including the Turks and the Saudis. And what role do you think those two countries have had in fueling the breakdown of the ceasefire? I think that Turkey has played some kind of a role. I think that We'll never get a a clear admission, but just if you might have noticed today, the rebels who are launching counteroffensives in Aleppo named their grouping Fatah Aleppo, or the Aleppo Conquest Group, which is clearly a reminder of a previous operations group they developed called the Idlib Conquest Group, which launched very successful territorial advances against the regime in the northwestern province of Idlib, and which began the whole string of defeats that we saw the regime fall into that made Russia so worried about Assad standing in the first place. And so I think that that's a sign to me that you know, they're signaling, we have backing for this, we're not going to step back, we are going to keep fighting. So I think that there is a sense that regional actors like Turkey and Saudi Arabia are frustrated that the big superpowers, at least in this terms of the Syria conflict, Russia and the United States can't reach a deal. And if they can't, then they want to secure their people on the ground. And I think that's what we're seeing happen. And meanwhile, David, of course, you know, ISIS are not just established in Syria. They also are in Iraq. They hold Mosul. And the Iraqi political scene seems to be getting more confused by the day with turbulence in Baghdad. Can you just tell us what's happening there? Well, as as you've seen, I think it isn't just in recent weeks. It's been building up for months and years. I mean, popular impatience with very basic things like the inability of this deeply corrupt and self-serving political class to even provide water and electricity, let alone security. This was supposed to change in the autumn of 2014 when the virulently sectarian former Prime Minister, Nuri al-Maliki, was replaced with the current one, Hadran Abadi. Although he has made recognizable efforts, most recently, for example, to put in a government essentially of technocrats in in all except the sensitive security measures, to get the lights on, the water flowing, all that, he has been thwarted by this 
venal political class and something snapped and the man to take advantage of it was this former Shia militia leader now converted into a sort of you know a man who wants to channel popular sentiment Muqtada Sadr and all of this is happening at a time when there have been some military successes on the ground after the army collapsed in 2014 and when there is a plan to retake Mosul. It's become clear for some time that Obama, before he leaves office, wants to retake Mosul and possibly Raqqa through a variety of local coalitions on the ground. All that would seem now a little bit moot. And indeed, the survival of Abadi and his government would be, I would have thought, in question as well. So, Erica, I mean, how do the two situations play into each other, Iraq and Syria? Is it possible to even think of them separately or are they kind of merging? I think for the US-led coalition, it's actually important to do both at different times. I think in terms of the military part, they probably want to keep that in many aspects separate because there are such different wars and dynamics happening on either side and they have to be sensitive to that. But I think in terms of strategy, they're facing similar problems in both Syria and Iraq on the political side, which is basically that the problem right now with fighting ISIS is no longer a military one. It is much more a political one. And that is what is happening in Baghdad. It's become so clear. Right now you have a government that is fighting itself, its own population that wants change, and they are incapable of paying attention in the way that the coalition would like them to to the fight against ISIS. And actually, I just recall an example when I was speaking to some parliamentarians yesterday, they said that the day that this whole storming of parliament happened on Saturday when protesters stormed the parliament in rage at the fact that a technocratic cabinet had not been formed, the military forces were capturing the town of Bashir. And Haider Labadi, who normally speaks daily to those security forces, was completely distracted with the political problem. And that is something that's not in a way unique to Iraq. The political problems are becoming an issue all over. You know, in Syria, it's the same thing with the U.S. dealing with what Turkey wants, what Russia wants, what the rebels want. So they really have to keep an eye on how politically they're going to get people to work together so that militarily they can fight. Okay, we'll have to leave it there for this week. Thank you very much indeed, Erica Solomon, and to David Gardner as well. Until next week. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Goodbye.